warm welcome to public meetings, particularly if this is, uh, you're joining us for the first time. Uh, my name is Paddy, I'm one of the staff workers here with the EU. And uh, uh, today, we're, this week actually, we're looking at uh, a series uh, of what next after our This Is Life three weeks. And uh, we're going to be looking over the next three weeks about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Uh, this week we've got three different talks. Uh, why should I follow Jesus? That was yesterday. Anyone come to that, by the way? Nice. Oh, good. Uh, today, what does it cost to follow Jesus? And tomorrow I'm speaking on, am I really following Jesus? Uh, we've given you uh, three different opportunities, partly because you may be someone who is interested in uh, continuing to pursue what it means to actually be a follower of Jesus, uh, or you may be a Christian and uh, would like answers to these sorts of questions. Uh, today we're going to be looking uh, at what it costs to follow Jesus. And I thought I would just at least start by giving a brief summary of what it actually means and uh, why people... Uh, should follow Jesus, based on pretty much on, last, on yesterday, just for a couple of minutes. Uh, the Bible talks about following Jesus as being in a relationship with Jesus. Uh, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, it means to relate to him individually. If you want to fix the slides, feel free to jump up. That'd be good. Yeah, I just see, I see people looking up here at slides, and I see all this light happening behind me, and either something's coming through the back wall at me and you haven't told me yet, but you're all still sitting there, so it's obviously not going to affect you. So, uh, let's just uh, let's just go with the next one. You would want the next one. By the way, if you're listening to the recording, uh, there's really not much point in starting to listen until about until about now. <laughs> Gives the sound guys a moment to edit it out. If you've got questions for today, you can text them. It comes onto my phone. Uh, what do we mean when we talk about following Jesus? Uh, well, one of the things that we need to understand when it comes to following Jesus is that it's about a relationship that we have with Him. Uh, Following Jesus is not necessarily and solely just trying to attain a higher spiritual state. It's not necessarily and solely just following regulations, laws and commandments. And following Jesus is not just another world religion, so that you can pick and choose the best bits of all of them and come up with what you think is actually the best way to be a follower of Jesus. Now, Christianity actually makes some fairly outrageous and startling claims and says that following Jesus means to follow what he says. Now, for some of you, you may have read the Bible as a child. You may have been taken to church, perhaps willingly or unwillingly. Uh, You may have had to sit through uh, school chapel services. I want to challenge you today, and hopefully you've been challenged over the last couple of weeks, to consider the claims and words of Jesus as an adult and to engage with what he says in much the same way that you would engage with any other subject. Were any of you in this lecture theatre in the previous hour? One of you. Okay. I happened to come in a little bit early and stand at the back of the previous classroom, and here's a couple of things that I noticed. Uh, I thought the lecture was actually not really very interesting. No disrespect to the subject. I don't even know what subject it was. After five minutes, I was ready to leave. I noticed there were mostly the people up that area over there were sort of talking to each other. The people down here were taking notes. And most of the people up in the back corner had sort of nodded off or were really ready to leave. I really hope that I'm going to be far more engaging than that previous lecture. But in the end, it is not my engagement that you need to be satisfied or dissatisfied with. When we open the words of the Bible and read the text and look at what the words that Jesus says, that's the thing that I want you to engage with. And hopefully the manner in which we do it is confronting and persuasive. And I want you to actually engage deeply with the words of Jesus. 
Okay. Well, why is it that uh, we don't follow Jesus when it comes to counting the cost? I think part of the reason why people don't follow Jesus, well, for two reasons. Firstly, we don't actually count the cost. We don't weigh up whether or not it's worth it. Most things in life have some value, some worth. Uh, let's do a rough show of hands, because I'm going to try and make this a little bit engaging. Who thinks that on their person at the moment, they have something of value, of worth, more than $100? Okay, more than $200? More than $500? Okay, so you're all the people that have brought your laptop, laptops to uni. Okay, hands down, thank you. We place value and worth to objects, don't we? Some we give greater value or greater worth. A friend of mine... Uh, uh, who was recently a university student, uh, had her place broken into on the weekend. And uh, the uh, perpetrators, whoever they were, uh, were pretty much only after one thing, that was objects of great value. Which means they left the trinkets, which had great sentimental value to my friend, but they took the stuff they could get the most cash for. Now, in doing so, one of the things that they took was a camera, uh, which, and I don't know the value of the camera, but they presumably thought that it was worth something quite significant. When I talked to my friend about this, she was naturally quite upset that her camera had been taken. But the thing that upset her most, other than that really yuck feeling of knowing that someone else has been in your personal space and has gone through your stuff and you don't know who they are and you just, other than that really feeling... And if it's happened to you, you know what I mean. The thing that hurt her most was not the monetary value attached with the camera, although that comes at a cost to replace. The thing that hurt most was the fact that actually the memories and the images that she had on that camera are now gone forever. Do you see how we place value and worth to things? Now, I think when it comes to this question of why we don't follow Jesus, it's because we don't appropriately place a value or a cost on what it actually means to follow Jesus. The second thing is, I think in most cases, we're just not convinced that it's actually worth it. Some people will be sitting in the audience saying, you really do need to persuade me that it is actually worth something for me to stop the way I'm living now and live the way that Jesus asked me to live. Okay, I'm going to deal with what does it cost to follow Jesus? And the way we're going to do it is we're going to read a passage from the Bible, which is in Luke chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, or if you can't see a Bible, I'd like you to stick up your hand, and the ushers are going to give you a Bible. One over here, any one down the back. Uh, these are Bibles that you can take. They're the New Testament, copies of the New Testament, which is the uh, collection of books that were written uh, uh, describing the life of Jesus and after the life of Jesus. And the passage that we're going to look at today comes from Luke chapter 9. If you need to, you can use the contents page. If you're using uh, one of the Bibles that we've given you, by all means, please feel free to take that at the end. That's our gift to you. Uh, can I encourage you to go away and read it if you don't regularly read the Bible? Uh, Luke chapter 9, which is found on page 90. In your Bible, it'll be whatever page it's on. I'm going to read a passage from the words of Jesus, Luke chapter 9, verses 18 to 27. The chapter numbers are the big, big numbers and the verse numbers are the little numbers that you can see. In my Bible, the verse numbers are really, really small. 
Chapter 9, verse 18. Hear the words of Jesus, friends. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. In a minute, I'm going to I get you to turn to your neighbour and have a little conversation about this passage. The question I'd like you to try and answer is, what is surprising about the text? As you read through the text, what are you surprised at? You may have read the text for the first time today. You may have read the text for years and years and years. What are you surprised at? But first, let me just unpack a little bit of the words and phrases. Uh, this little phrase, uh, John the Baptist, another Elijah, John the Baptist was the prophet that had come before Jesus, who at this point had probably been beheaded and was dead, obviously. Uh, the second person that there is Elijah, he was one of the prophets in the Old Testament, who according to the Old Testament passage didn't actually die, he was taken up to heaven in a fiery chariot. And so you can see there why perhaps some people wonder if this man Jesus was John, come back to life, or Elijah perhaps come back to earth. Peter's response is an interesting one because he says, you are the Christ of God. Christ is not Jesus' surname. Okay? Christ is actually a title, like Mr. or Ms. or Hey You, or Christ is actually a title. Now, the title just means Messiah or Anointed One. Now, it's an Old Testament word which is loaded with all sorts of meaning and intent. The expectation was in the Old Testament that the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, would one day come and redeem, rescue all of God's people. Okay, talk to the person next year for a couple of minutes and answer the question, what surprises you about the text? Or what intrigues you about the text? What puzzles you about the text? Okay. That's probably long enough. I suspect some of you have gone on to talk about what you're doing this weekend. So let's round it out there. Now I'm going to come back to answer this question as we work our way through the text. I want to spend some time looking at this particular part of the Bible and Jesus' words. And I want to try and answer, what does it cost to follow Jesus? I have four main points that I'm going to make over the next 15 minutes or so. The first is, what does it cost God? What does it cost God for you and I to be able to follow Jesus? What does it cost God for you and I to be able to follow Jesus? Notice here what Jesus has come to do. Uh, in there in verse 22. 
And he said, the son of man, he's referring to himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. He must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. The text tells us what it's going to cost God for us to be able to follow Jesus. The cost is that God's son, Jesus, will die. Notice here there's no monetary value attached with this. There's no emotional value attached with it at the moment. But there's a very strong relational cost for God. See, in the death of Jesus, what's going on is that God the Father allows the Son to go to the cross to die. Uh, This is not some form of cosmic child abuse. Jesus, fully knowing and understanding what will take place, goes willingly to the cross. And on the cross, the the Father pours out punishment on the Son. The cost is very high. See, God is prepared to bear that high cost for a couple of reasons. Firstly, because if there had been some other way that would enable us to be able to follow Jesus, it begs the question that surely that way would have been taken. We know in other parts of the Gospels where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he prays to his Father and he says, if there is any other way, take the cup of suffering from me. If not, I'll follow that path of suffering and go to the cross. If there was any other way for it to be possible for us to be able to follow Jesus and in doing so be in a relationship with God the Father, surely God would have taken it. Now the punishment that's poured out on the Son is actually something that we deserve. And we'll come to this a little bit later. So how costly is it for God? Well, the Father and the Son were not, if I can put it this way, in an average father-son relationship. Uh, I know some of you in the room, but I don't know all of you, and so I don't want to presume too much about the way in which you get on with your parents. For some of you, just thinking about the way in which you relate to your parents is actually quite emotionally difficult. It may be that you didn't have a pleasant childhood. It may be that your parents, perhaps one of them has died. It may be that perhaps your parents now don't get on with each other to varying degrees. But we, at times, when we come to consider the relationship between the Father and the Son in the Bible, need to just put aside for a moment our view of parents and the way in which they've related to us and look to the way in which God the Father and God the Son are in a relationship. And the Bible in other parts tells us that the way in which they relate is perfectly. And at this point you see why we just need to, for a moment, put aside, but never forget the way in which our parents may have related to us. Because I'm yet to meet a parent who has children, and I am one, who relates perfectly to them. But in the Bible we see a perfect relationship between the father and the son. Perfect intimacy. 
perfect trust, perfect love. And so on the cross, when Jesus goes to die and the Father pours out his judgment on the Son, this, friends, is the cost that both the Father and the Son have to bear. The physical death of crucifixion is one of the worst ways to die. Uh, historical records indicate this. The Romans perfected it. That would have been a high cost. And please, I don't want to diminish the fact that Jesus was crucified. The sheer agony and pain of that is such a high cost. But the Bible doesn't dwell significantly on the physicality of the death of Jesus in terms of the physical pain he suffered. Rather, it speaks more significantly of the emotional pain and the break and the stretching and the tension and the in the relationship between the Father and the Son. This is the cost that the Father bears, the death of his Son. The other thing that we should be aware of is that the cost to God is high because God, as our Creator, places a high value on our life. So the reason why Jesus goes to the cross is so that we can now be right back in right relationship with God. God pays the price, and it's a high price, and he does it for us. Which actually says something about what we're worth. It says significant things about the cost that God goes through in terms of the father-son relationship, but it also tells us something about what we're worth. If this afternoon you're walking down to Redfern Station and you're crossing busy city road and for some reason you fail to see the oncoming bus, well, if the bus hits you, that will be a very high cost. Your life will cease to exist. But if someone throws themselves in front of the bus and in doing so throws you out of the way, that person's actually placing a value on your life. They're prepared for you to live and for themselves to die. The same is going on when Jesus dies on the cross. It places a value on our life. So the first cost is the cost to God, the death of his son. But what about the cost to us? What does it cost us to follow Jesus? Have a look again in the passage and see if you can find out what it costs us. The first thing I want to say, and we know this from elsewhere, and it's alluded to a little bit in this passage, is that actually if you want to start being a follower of God, it costs you nothing. You hear that? If you want to start being a follower of God, it actually costs you nothing. The Bible talks about this idea of repentance, turning around, making a, making a change, making a decision. The cost of repenting for us is nothing. We bring nothing to the table to try and do a deal with God. It's not as if we're sitting there and we're doing a bit of a trade. Look, God, I know you've sent Jesus to die for me, but let's see, what can I bring? The $500 computer? What if I give up some of my friends? What if I do lots of good things for the rest of my life? What if I promise to... No, no, actually, starting a relationship with God costs you nothing. 
It's a free gift of God. Because the cost of enabling that relationship has already been fully paid in Jesus dying on the cross. The Bible describes it by using the word grace. A free gift given to us. If you want to read more about that, you can look it up in Ephesians chapter 2. Now I want to ask, if you would be sitting here today and would claim to be a follower of Jesus, my question to you is, how often do you thank God for that? How often do you remember the high cost, the high price he paid? Have you done so this morning? Today? Yesterday? Perhaps only last year? See, if we call ourselves followers of Jesus, then actually the gift that he's given us requires a certain response. And I think the first response is one of enormous thankfulness for what he has done for us to be able to become followers of Jesus. Third point, one to go after this. There's also another cost to us, though, isn't there? Do you see this in the text? I want to say the cost to us to start a relationship with God is nothing. That has already been paid by Jesus dying. But actually, there is a cost to us, isn't there? Do you notice what it says here down in verse 23? Then he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. See, the cost to us, once we've entered into a relationship with God, is actually everything. And that Jesus says, if you continue to chase after, well, what is it? If you can continue to chase after trying to gain the whole world, and yet you lose or forfeit yourself, what have you gained? And so I actually think the cost to us is that we need to give up things. The cost is that it means denying ourselves and taking up our cross daily. Now, I don't think Jesus is speaking literally here. I don't think he means you get up in the morning and, you know, this big wooden cross is sitting next to your bed and you strap it on and all day you just walk around with it, dragging around. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. Because Jesus didn't carry a physical wooden cross every day of his life, did he? But what does the cross symbolise? Well, it symbolises sacrifice. It symbolises a commitment to a relationship. Jesus is committed to honouring the relationship he has with his father that he goes to the cross. He's committed to a relationship with you so much he's prepared to die on the cross. And so what does it mean to take up your cross? I take it that it means it will come at some cost to you. That you will now try and follow the way Jesus wants you to live in contrast to following the way you think you want to live. Which for most of us, I think, tends towards trying to gain the world or at least some of the things in the world. Um, Talk to your neighbour again and answer this question. Um, What would you give up to live? What would you give up to live? I'll give you one minute because I've nearly finished. What would you give up to live? Okay. Much, Much as I would love... 
Much as I would love to do a brief survey to see how much you would give up to live, let me just read you one short story. Uh, this is about a man uh, named Aaron Ralston. Heard the name? Is the name familiar? Anyone remember the name? Yes, this is a great story. Uh, Aaron Ralston uh, was an American. Do you see where this is going already? No. Um, Aaron Ralston... <laughs> Apologies to the Americans in the room. Aaron Ralston was an American who uh, went out by himself canyoning uh, one, one time. Uh, he was a bit of an outdoorsy, adventury sort of type of guy. Anyway, to cut a long story short, he got himself stuck and he had his arm wedged between a boulder and the wall of a canyon. You remember this guy now? Yeah, this is the bloke who hacks off his arm, okay? That's, that's where we're going. Uh, oh, you don't want the gory details as well? He tries to pull his arm out. doesn't work. He tries to move the boulder. It's, you know, 600, 800 pounds. Can't do it. By day five... His arm is still stuck there. He goes, okay, what's it going to cost me to live? I'm going to take my arm off. So he takes out his Swiss army knife and he decides that he needs to take out his arm. The difficulty here is that bones don't cut very easily with a Swiss army knife. So the first thing he needs to do is he needs to break his arm. So the only thing I can think, please don't do this, the only thing I can, the comparison is, see between the, lecture, between the seats in the lecture theatre, just all put your forearm in between. So you just, no, just seriously, just do it. No, don't move. Just if you just gently put your arm in there, just push it down a little bit. Oh, you're all too squeamish, aren't you? That's what his arm was like. So what he does is he wrenches his entire body and snaps his arm straight clean across here. Okay, there's two. There's bone in your arm here. Then what he does is he gets his pocket knife and he saws away at the flesh, the veins, the arteries. Why is it all the girls that are doing this? All the blokes are going, yeah. The self-surgery, which is what it was, took him an hour. Now, how much, how much was he prepared to live? Now, we, we could spend a while talking about that little incident, but I'm not going to do it anymore. How much was he prepared to live? Well, he was actually prepared to pay quite a high price, wasn't he? And I don't think initially the first thing that goes through your head is, actually, am I prepared to live without an arm? No, I think the thing that goes through your head is, am I actually going to be able to do this? And what happens if I get halfway through and want to stop? <laughs> like that. Once you've started, you're committed. That's how much he was prepared to live. So my question is, if Jesus offers you eternal life with a new body, which you don't have to mutilate to get there how much are you prepared to give up for it will you give up a big mac meal on the way home that's a bit of a no-brainer offer of eternal life big mac meal now you see someone's taking the big mac meal i'm worried now <laughs> hear the cost hear the cost what point do you actually go actually that offer of eternal life doesn't look as good anymore a million dollars? I talked to someone two weeks ago as we were having one of our events who wasn't a Christian. He admitted he wasn't a Christian. I said, what would it take me to persuade you to become a Christian? And he quickly said, a million dollars in a Swiss bank account. I kid you not. To which I pushed back and I said, what about 900,000? He paused and thought about it. Now, there's some threshold at which he'll go, no, no, it has to be a million. Where's your threshold? 
if Jesus is offering eternal life, living forever in a perfect relationship with God. And thank you for the question about the perfect relationship with God. I'm going to get to that in about two minutes. What price for your life? Because the fourth point is there's a cost if you decline God's offer. There's a cost to God. There's a cost to us. And there's also a cost if you decline this offer of God. And the Bible says, notice, verse 25, verse 26. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. See, the cost to us, if we decline God's free offer, well, it's actually everything. You may have gained the entire world, but when you die, you get nothing. And so this is the cost that we need to weigh up. Are you prepared to try and gain lots and lots and lots of stuff now? And by stuff, I don't, just don't mean material things. Great relationships, but not perfect relationships. Material things, a nice car, a big house, a bigger house, an even bigger house, and then a smaller house when you retire. Because <laughs> you realise the big house you can't clean anymore. But you know that when you die, you can't take any of it with you. And that's it. What cost? Well, if you decline the offer of God, the cost to us is everything. But it's more than that. Notice what Jesus says. One day, Jesus is going to come back again. And at that point, if you've been ashamed of the words of Jesus, if you've not been a follower of Jesus, Jesus says he will be ashamed of you on that day. And the Bible says, well, you will be shut out of the presence of God for all eternity. Do I say that to try and scare you? No, I say it because it's the words of Jesus. Um, sometimes when we're watching horror movies, it's always better the second or third time around, isn't it? Because we know when something's going to happen. The reason why it's good to know what's going to happen is not so we can still be scared, but so we can make a well-informed decision. So I want to say to you now, I want you to count the cost. And how would you respond to the words of Jesus? Okay, I've got a couple of questions, which I'm going to try and answer. And I'm aiming to finish before 10 too. Okay, one question from... Yeah, good. Okay, here we go. Can you please explain the perfect father-son relationship in more detail and in a more solid way? What does perfect mean exactly? Okay, question two. Because um, I'm thinking of an answer for question one. Isn't the cost to God only superficial because he knew his son would resurrect? Wow, that's a good question. Um, I think the, the easy answer is to say, yes, it is a superficial cost because God in his wisdom and foreknowledge knows that Jesus would come back to life. But I think what it does is it fails to consider the great cost of the emotional, the emotional cost that the father and the son have to go through. Um, if, for example, um, you went overseas to do a gap year, for example, do you think your parents, full well knowing that you'd be coming back again, 
felt no emotional loss. You've not stopped being their child. But actually then you're no longer with them. You're in the other side of the world. Yes, I know there's Skype and internet and all these sorts of things. And, but you can't give them a hug and neither can they. You can't share a meal together for that period of a year. Do you think they feel somehow differently emotionally? I think the same. I think the answer has to be yes. And so while there, it appears as though there may only be a superficial cost, the emotional cost of the father, not just being away from the son, but actually having to be angry with the son, actually changes the relational dynamic quite significantly. Because what, once, what, what was once a perfect relationship, and here's the answer to the first question, a perfect relationship, I think, as, as described in the Bible, is one of perfect intimacy. See, in our relationships with other people, we, the degree of intimacy varies. With some people, we're just friends, and we remember their name. Or we're just friends with them on Facebook, and we can't really remember how we met them. <laughs> degree of intimacy? Pretty low. Okay. But as we get to know someone, and as we open up and as they open up, the degree of intimacy actually starts to increase, doesn't it? But it's unusual to find in any of our relationships perfect intimacy, where we're actually prepared to put ourselves out completely and absolutely and say absolutely everything about who we are and what we think. Why? Well, I think partly because we're afraid of being hurt or afraid of being rejected by the other person to whom we're opening up. And so in the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, because it's Trinity, actually there is no hiding of anything, emotionally, relationally. They are perfectly open with one another, perfectly trusting with one another. It starts to get close as you head towards permanent long-term relationships, so marriage. But it still doesn't come close because God, Father, Son and Spirit have perfect relationship, which means actually they trust each other perfectly. They only ever love and serve one another perfectly. And they only ever desire the other person's good all the time. That's about as far as I can go in terms of a more concrete explanation. Answer to the third question. This is the last one before I conclude. Uh, someone sent in a question saying, I've been a Christian for about six years. My life certainly hasn't felt like cross-bearing. I don't really know any Christians personally whose life looks like cross-bearing. Am I, and we all, really off-base or just a fair bit off-base? Sometimes Jesus just sounds too radical to obey. Thank you for that question. That's a really good question. When we hear the words of Jesus, I think they're quite confronting. Give up your life to follow Jesus. Now the challenge for us is the extent to which we will obey his teaching. Will you continue to follow Jesus such that in every aspect of your life, your life becomes more and more like the person and work of Jesus? Not that I am suggesting that one day you will be crucified. That's pushing it just a little bit too far. But are you prepared to serve people with your actions? Are you prepared to always love people with your words? Are you prepared to always help those who have less than you with your finances? Not just once, and not just when you're asked, but proactively and all the time. 
you see how that attitude suddenly reshapes and radically changes the decision you make in your life. How you spend your time, how you spend your money, the conversations you have with people, in that you're only ever building people up and never tearing them down. You're only ever thinking about other people's good and doing it in a self-sacrificing way. Not so that people will think more highly of you, but rather so that actually you will serve them. And in doing so, you will give up a lot. So if you've given everything away to the poor, chances are you're not going to be living in a really, really big house. Why? Because probably what you'll do is you'll say to somebody else, hey, look, actually, I just need to live in a smaller place. Why don't you move into the house? Here's the title deeds. Take it. Now, that's radically following Jesus, isn't it? So if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, and as you read his words, the challenge is, will you make a commitment this week? This week. So the rest of life just seems like, I can't relate to that. This week. Consider your life. And this week, will you live lives that are more like Jesus? And try and do it for a week. And then next week, try and do it for that week. And then next week, try and do it for that week. Keep a little journal. Reflect on it once a week, once a month. Am I living a life more like Jesus? And some of you are sitting there saying, I'm not really sure what that looks like. To which I say, go back and read the words of Jesus and find out how he wants you to live. Okay, thank you for the questions. I'm going to close by giving you an opportunity to consider more or perhaps actually become a follower of Jesus. I'm going to pray a prayer. And if you're someone who's been sitting here thinking, actually, yes, I do want to change life. I do want to start to be a follower of Jesus. I recognise that the price that Jesus paid was a high price. But for me, actually, it's a free gift. Perhaps you've appreciated more fully what it actually cost God for you to be restored into a relationship with him. Perhaps you'd like to be someone who would like to respond to God by being more thankful for the first time. In many respects, in this case, becoming a Christian is recognising that Jesus has borne that cost so that you can be in a relationship with God. If you'd like to do that, I'm going to pray a prayer now. If you would call yourself a follower of Jesus already, then you might like to pray the same prayer, but you may actually preface it with perhaps being more thankful to God for the price that he's paid that you could be a follower of Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Father God, I recognise what it cost you in the death of your son to enable me to be back in a relationship with you. Thank you for paying such a high price. I recognise that my life does not follow that of Jesus' life. And for that, I'm sorry. Thank you that you give me the offer of being able to follow Jesus. And thank you that you will help me to do that. Today, I commit to being a follower of Jesus, knowing that my life will change and that I will live day by day a life which is more like that of Jesus. Thank you. Amen.
uh, in your outlines is a green card.